So we are going to be continuing this week in our travel through the book of Shoftim. Uh, last time we were together, I said we were going to finish it up. Uh, it turns out I never got out of chapter 19 this week. <laughs> so instead of doing three chapters, we're only going to do one. But hey, you know what? Sometimes that's just the way it rolls. So last week we went over the fact that the last few books in the book of Shoftim are not in chronological order, but they're actually an epilogue to the book. Um, it consists of three different stories that actually fit together very nicely. And the author, who most believe to be Samuel the prophet, uses the story of Samson or Shimshon as a springboard to set up the final bookend, explaining why Israel actually needs a king. We're reminded that the overarching theme of the book of Judges is that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So last week we, we explored the first two stories and in those stories we learned that one, there was a man named Micah. He sought to reconnect with God and he did this though in the wrong way. He did it by creating household idols for him and his family to worship. He installed his own priesthood of his own son and then eventually hired an unnamed Levite to be his priest. The second story goes right in hand along with the first story in that the tribe of Dan at the time sought to find a land that they were not allotted. They traveled through the land of their brethren to find a land that they could conquer. Eventually, they ended up in the northern part of Israel, and they did find a people who were at peace, who Adonai told them to never, never told them to kick out of the land. We know that as history progresses later on, as there's a dividing in the kingdom and you have the northern tribes and the southern tribes, this city that they found, which is the city of Dan, will actually be one of the holding places of a false golden idol of a calf that they will build to worship God. None of this should really ever surprise us because it was already foretold by Adonai himself, by Moshe and Devarim, when he said, hey, when you ask for a king, this is how the king should live his life. And so this is setting up the picture for the next six books of uh, the Bible to go through Israel's ideals with a king and what it's like to live under a king. So verse one, jumping right in. Now in those days, there was no king in Israel. There was a certain Levite dwelling in a remote part of the hill country of Ephraim who got himself a concubine out of Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house into Bethlehem in Judah and, there, and was there for a period of four months. So I think this is a great place to pause and quite often people ask, well, what is a concubine? This is a great place to actually dive in because it gives us a deeper understanding of what's going on here in the entirety. So a concubine is a woman who lives exclusively with one man but has a lower status than his other wives because she has not been betrothed. Basically what this means is that because of this, she has no marriage contract. So she has no guaranteed rights. In the event that there's a divorce or that the husband dies, there's nothing left to this woman. Hence, she's a concubine. Think of it as the beginning stages of what we would call in America the prenuptial agreement. She gets protection from the husband while she stays with him. She gets food, lodging, and the comfort of the husband. She also gets to bear him children. But in the event that something tragic happens, she's out on the streets. She is nothing to her name. So this concubine of his, the unnamed Levite, she goes away from him. 
Now, something happens at this point. We're not totally privy to the events leading up, but the rabbis do draw out some very interesting ideas that help us to get a little better understanding of the picture here. So, but the idea is that, so she went away from him, commits adultery on him, and runs away, presumably, because she knew of his temper. So she's committed adultery, is the presumption, and as a result, she then runs away because she's afraid of the wrath that she's possibly going to incur from her husband. So now there's an interesting article, uh, tractate in the Talmud, which addresses this issue of the anger of the unnamed Levite. And it goes like this. The Talmud records two reasons for the Levite's anger. Now, according to Rav Abiyasar, he found a dead fly in his food. And according to Rabbi Yonasan, he found a hair that was a hair and was annoyed by her personal sloppy hygiene. So now, bear in mind, this is the Talmud. And so what we're going to see happen here is the rabbis are trying to figure out what is the rest of the story here. Like, a woman doesn't just leave her husband, or a man or a woman, I should say, at the same time. Adultery doesn't just happen. There's a series of events that take place before the ultimate sin of adultery uh, comes to fruition. So now the idea put forth is that the adultery and subsequent running away of the concubine were preceded by a series of events because of the untempered anger of the Levite. Now, obviously, a dead fly or a hair in a soup is hardly something to freak out about. But the Talmud continues to explain why they think there might be an anger issue here with the Levite. So once, Rabbi Esar encountered the private Elijah, uh, prophet Elijah, who revealed to him that God testified that both of the sages were right. The Levite found a fly and ignored it. But when the second problem, the hair, emerged, he became angry about both. Isn't this how arguments tend to go? You forgive the first time. What is it? Uh, shame, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. In the Levite's case, he's like, hey, fool me the second time. I'm going to freak out at you. And so the, through this, we see that the Talmud is trying to convey a very important message. And that message is, is that adultery doesn't just happen. It builds up. So in this case, the idea is that the Levite's temper drove his concubine away into the arms of another. Because being a concubine, she has nothing to lose. If the man decides to put her away in a divorce, she's not getting anything either. Anyway, she's not entitled to anything. So she says, hey, might as well. He's treated me wrong. I'll go find love in another man's arms. And then I'm just going to run away. What's he going to do? So the overreactions to trivial offenses can lead to terrible outcomes. So according to the rabbis here, if they are correct, he overreacts to a dead fly in his soup. Just pick it out, throw it away. Get a new bowl of soup. It's not a big deal. But because of that, she overreacts to his overreaction, and she then commits adultery. He's going to overreact to her overreacting and committing adultery to his overreaction of being angry. And eventually, we're going to see this is going to lead to a whole blown, blown out civil war in the whole country. But here's how he should have responded. The book of Ephesians, if you want to turn with me there to chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. 
It says this in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Messiah also loved his community and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Having cleansed her by immersion in the word, Messiah did this so that he might present himself his glorious community, not having stain or wrinkle or any such thing, but in order that she might be holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. That's how he should have reacted. And the scriptures go, go further on. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Messiah also does his community, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm talking about the Messiah and his community. In any case, let each of you love his own wife as himself, and let the wife respect her husband. I love that we just went through like nine verses talking to the men about not being a knucklehead and loving your wife, and then there's one little half a verse for the wives at the end, and they say, hey, wives, respect your husbands. Clearly, as men, we're kind of thick-headed, and it takes a little more. Within Judaism, there is actually quite often this understanding that the female side of our species tends to have a better connection with God. They're a little more, I don't want to necessarily say holy, but they're just closer to God. They're, 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 their emotional makeup allows them to be more, more um, in tune with God, more vulnerable to God, if I could say that. As men, we tend to put up a wall and say, well, I'm not going to cry. And why a woman's like, you know what, God, I just want to cry and get it all out. You know, and that makes them vulnerable and closer to the heart of God. So in the Tree of Life version, I love the fact that they're actually very cautious here. Because this is the infamous verse, this last verse here. And let the wife respect her husband. In the Tree of Life version, they say, wives, respect your husbands. And basically every other version underneath the sun, it says, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. That word submit often doesn't go over well in our culture. But if we try to use different words, we get a lack of understanding of what this scripture is actually putting forward. This, the scripture is putting forward as husbands, it's our duty to give our wives something worthy to respect or submit to. It's my job. I love that these verses go through and it says, husbands, love your own wives. And wives, submit to your own husband. Husbands, keep your eyes on the home front. Wives, you don't have to submit to another man. You submit to your husband. You respect your husband alone. That's the priority within the house. Now, an unknown author once penned, as husbands, we are to reflect the rulership of Messiah in our homes. This rulership is one of the benevolent dictator, and it's a precarious one. Therefore, we must always be quick to remember, while we may have the final say in matters pertaining to our own homes and family, it also means that we shoulder all the responsibility pertaining to those decisions. Torah puts forth that in the day that a man hears a commitment that his wife has made, he has 24 hours to renege on it, or to go forward with it. But ultimately, in the end, all the responsibility falls upon the husbands. 
That means that one day as a husband myself, I have to stand before my creator for everything that's happened in my household. Not my wife, me. That's kind of freeing for a wife because it all falls on me. And she's like, hey, in the garden, this wife, woman you gave me. And God says, no, 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 no. It's you. It's you. So that means in eternity when my wife stands before the creator, she could say, hey, that, that husband you gave me, I love him. But in this one instance, he was such a knucklehead. And Adam and I will look on and say, yeah, I love him too. And he was kind of a knucklehead. But you know what? You did great. You still submitted to his idea, even though it wasn't necessarily the best. As long as the idea, let me put a caveat here, does not bring harm to you or your children. That's a big caveat there. But all the responsibility falls on the husband's. This means that both the success and failure of our families rests upon us. There's a great saying from Dennis Rainey of Family Life, and maybe if the, Levit- the unnamed Levite had heard this, it would have helped him out. He says, husbands, your unconditional acceptance of your wife is not based upon her performance, but on her worth as God's gift to you. Man, that's huge. The fact that my wife is a gift. The Bible does declare that he who finds a wife has a good thing. He finds a great thing. She's a gift. Therefore, we need to treat her as such and be worthy of her to submit to us as husbands. However, we know how things work out in our lives. An argument starts up, and nobody wants to be the wrong one. We both know, I almost feel like my wife needs to be up here with me today. (laughs) We both know that something is wrong, something has happened, that communication has broken down. But what has to happen is that somebody has to start the process of restoration. Somebody has to humble themselves. Either the husband says, you know what, I'm sorry. Let's let's move forward, I'm going to drop this. Or the wife says, you know what? No, honey, I love you. I respect you. I'm going to submit to what your decision is. And quite often when that happens, a miraculous thing happens. The other person really says right away usually, no, no, I was the one who started it. And the restoration process begins. But somebody has to start the process. You see, when we walk out our lives in a manner that glorifies God and his word, we inadvertently show the world the relationship we have with our Messiah, Yeshua. The world will know that I love Messiah Yeshua by the way I treat my wife as a husband. The world will know that a wife loves Messiah Yeshua by the way she submits and respects her husband in front of others. If the argument we see put forth in the Talmud is correct, then this unnamed Levite was potentially emotionally unavailable and abusive. This idea is actually highlighted in the following verse, in verse 3. So her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. So if he's speaking kindly to her, the idea kind of is that he wasn't speaking kindly to her and drove her away to begin with. He had his servant and a pair of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the father of the young man saw him, he was glad to meet him. His father-in-law, the young, man's, the young woman's father, kept him staying with him three days, eating, drinking, and lodging there. So they're celebrating. He's come back for his wayward concubine, his wayward wife. The thing, though, is that it took his temper four months to subside. Too long. The Bible would declare that, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. If you get in an argument with your spouse, 
Make it right. Don't wait till tomorrow. Make it right today. You might say, hey, I'm sorry, and the other one says, well, I don't feel like you're sorry. Well, let's at least start. Let's make this, let's get this ball rolling a little bit. Let's not wait, put it off for tomorrow. You know, Raubach actually suggests that over the passage of time, he came to realize that it was his own conduct which gave place for her leaving, and so he takes the initiative to win her back. Took him a little while. Took him a long while. Four months is a long time. We're going to see that in this four-month time, there's a possibility that more speculation and jealousy actually may come up in the husband's ideas of what his wife has been doing. Because he's going to be saying later on that he's going to be going to the, temp- to the tabernacle in Shiloh. And uh, there's a couple reasons why he may be heading there. But we see that he does. He seeks to bring her back. And so he yuppies himself up and uses smooth talking and a smooth ride. So he gets himself all dolled up. He says beautiful, smooth words to her to get her to come back. And he even brings her a donkey to ride on on the way back. It's as if he's put on his best three-piece leisure suit, and he's pulled up in his Trans Am. He's like, hey, baby, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Come back. And he works. (laughs) It works. I mean, I guess absence makes the heart grow fonder. Four months is a long time to be separated from your spouse. But it works, and he brings her back. But now we have an issue. For if she has played the harlot, as the previous verse states, then he cannot take her back according to commandment number seven. Do not commit adultery. In fact, this sin is taken so seriously that the religious leaders of Yeshua's time tried to use a trap, use it as a trap to ensnare him. The book of John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives at dawn. He came again into the temple. All the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The Torah scholars and Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught in adultery. After putting her in the middle, they said to Yeshua, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of committing adultery. In the Torah, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now they were saying this to trap him so that they would have grounds to accuse him. But Yeshua knelt down and started writing in the dirt with his finger. When they kept asking him, he stood up and said, The sinless one among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he knelt down again and continued writing in the ground. Now when they heard, they began to leave, one by one, the oldest ones first, until Yeshua was left alone with the woman in the middle. Straightening up, Yeshua said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you. And Yeshua said, go and sin no more. Clearly, Yeshua knew there was a sin issue there. And yet there's certain reasons why he's not allowed to bring condemnation upon her. Because there is Torah disciplinary protocol for adultery. So in its simplest form, there must be two witnesses to the issue. The witnesses must testify and cast the first stones if a guilty verdict is found. And both parties to the adultery must be present. So in the case of Yeshua being asked to make this judgment call on the adultery, he acknowledges that in this case there has been a massive breach of protocol leading to a mistrial. There's not more than two. Well, I guess technically maybe we could say there's two witnesses. 
And yet these witnesses do not testify, and they refuse to cast the first stone. And where's the man? It's a total, this, is a, this is bad. This is a total setup. Yeshua says, I can't make a judgment call. I wasn't there. There's no witnesses. Even if there are witnesses, they're unwilling to cast a stone to start this ball rolling. And where's the dude? No, I can't condemn you in this. But, being God, I know, go and sin no more. Stop doing what you're doing. Now on the fourth day, going back to the book of Judges, verse 5, now on the fourth day they woke up early in the morning and he rose up to depart. But the young man's father, well, excuse me, young woman's father, said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward you may go. So the two of them sat down and ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, please be willing to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Then the man rose up to depart, but his father-in-law urged him, so he lodged there again. Then he woke up early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, please strengthen yourself and tarry until afternoon. So both of them ate. And when the man rose up to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Behold now, the day is waning toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day is drawing to a close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. Then tomorrow get up early for your journey so that you may go home. So he tries one final time. But the man would not spend the night. So he rose up and departed and came to a place near Jabus, that is Jerusalem. And with him were a pair of saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jabus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, please, and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of Benai Israel or the children of God, because let's go on to Gibeah. So at this time, the Jebusites are ruling in the city of Jerusalem, so it does not belong to Israel yet. In fact, it will not belong to Israel until under the leadership of King David. So come on, he said to his servant, let's try to reach one of these places. We'll spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. Then they turned aside there to enter and lodge in Gibeon. When he went in, he sat down in the town square, for there was no one who took them into his house to spend the night. In this, we see that an outward sign of the Benjamites slipping into moral depravity was their lack of hospitality towards those who were in need. These people needed shelter, and no one offered it. In this culture, in this time, that's very odd. In fact, we see another story that there's going to be a good comparison to in the book of Genesis or Bereshit with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen very closely as we go through these next verses. It almost sounds exactly the same. We also see this downward progression of selfishness described in the book of Romans. Chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. Let's read this together. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32. Now, in verses 18 through 27, as you're turning there, the writer, who is Rav Shaul, Paul, the apostle, speaks of those who have traded off the truths of God to follow the lies of the world. 
And as a result, because they seek the understanding and the wisdom of the world, there's a few things that happen. Verse 28, so just as they did not see fit to recognize God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what is not fitting. They become filled with, with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. They are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, they not only do these things, but also approve of others who practice the same. So these Benjamites were in a very, on a very slippery slope. The slippery slope of the moral decay or the moral decline of a society. These 22 words here are the words that we just read through in the book of Romans. A lot of things happen that show a decline in the society. And the thing is, is the decline in the society is not strictly because of politicians. The politicians simply reflect the hearts of the people in the society as a whole. So when a society lacks hospitality, hospitality, just as the Benjamites did, they deny the very essence of what God has called them as humans to be. When we're evil, when we're gossips, when we're slanderers, when we're unrighteous and wicked, when we have depraved minds, when we're deceitful and boastful and haughty, and we approve of those who do evil things, we're not being what God has called us to be. Our Messiah summed up the obligation perfectly when he said to the, the greatest commandment of all are these, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Unfortunately, the Benjamites seem to have forgotten these two commandments. Now behold, verse 16, an old man was coming from his work in the field that evening. The man was of the hill country of Ephraim, what dwelled in Gibeah, while the rest of the men of the place were Benjamites. When he lifted up his eyes and saw the wayfaring man in the open square of the field, the old man asked, where are you going and where do you come from? We're passing from Bethlehem of Judah, he said to him, to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there, and I went to Bethlehem of Judah. But now I'm going to the house of Adonai, yet no one has taken me into his house. So we see that this Levite is heading towards the house of Adonai, and we hinted at it earlier. We're never really told exactly his reasoning for going to the house of Adonai, but I think there's a pretty good chance that he's going there to perform, to perform the Sotah ritual or the ritual of the jealous husband. You know, they would go in Numbers chapter 5, uh, a, a husband who has a spirit of jealousy that his wife might be committing adultery would go and they would write words of God on a scroll and they'd scrape it into water. The woman would drink the bitter water. And if the woman had committed adultery, then she would rot, basically, is what the scripture says. However, if she was fine and she got pregnant, then the husband would be found at fault because he was jealous for no reason, and he could never divorce her again or leave her alone. He was committed to her for the rest of his life. I think there's a good chance that's where we're going here because who knows what might have happened in those four months when she was with her father. Now, in his commentary on the Tanakh, Rabbi Yaakov Kuli speculates about this old man. He says, by stressing that he was old, 
The scripture may be suggesting that the traditional Jewish trait of kindness to strangers had been ingrained from his youth, so much so that he was not influenced by the vulgarity of the young people of Gibeah. This is a pretty interesting concept here. We see this in our own society today, where we have older generations who look on and say, I can't believe the kids of this day, what they're doing. Nothing changes. It's all the same. Every generation seems to look down upon the younger generation, and the younger generation tends to look down upon the older generation. It's all the same. It's always happened, but we're called to be better than that as believers in Messiah. So this idea coupled together with the understanding that this old man was an out-of-towner and not a Benjamite gives us a better understanding of the moral depravity of Gibeah. The less interaction we have with sin and sinfulness, the chances are that we have, have to see it for what it is truly worth. The more we put into our eyes and take into our ears, the more likely we're to allow to happen in our lives. We've had this with our, our children this week. They had an experience where they looked down upon someone and said, I can't believe they do this. And that's because our children have never been exposed to a specific thing. So when they see unrighteousness take, full, take place, they're like, ah, why would anyone want to do that? That's ungodly. It's against the word of God. But the more we allow to come in, the more we become more like the world and the more we're willing to allow slide in our lives. So nevertheless, verse 19, there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, your handmaiden, and the young man that is with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, Shalom to you. Let all your needs be on me. Only don't spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were making their hearts merry, behold, some worthless men of the town surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the owner of the house, Bring out the man that came into your house, so we may have relations with him. But the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please don't do this evil. After all, this man has come into my house. Don't commit this disgraceful deed. The parallels of the story here and the parallels of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah are the same. Men of the city come. And this time, the difference, though, is in Sodom and Gomorrah, it was all the men from the oldest to the youngest came out. In this, in this case, we have a certain group of men, but they come up and they want to have some homosexual uh, activities with this Levite. And the owner of the house says, no, that's depraved. No, can't do that. But just as these cities were destroyed, Sodom and Gomorrah, with fire by God, we will see next time that this city will also be destroyed by fire by their own brethren. So look, here is my virgin daughter, he continues on, and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you may abuse them and do them whatever pleases you. This is messed up. But don't do such a degrading thing to this man. But the man would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them, and they raped her and abused her all night until morning. When dawn broke, they let her go, and as the morning came, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until it was full daylight. So we see the cowardly actions of offering another human being in your stead for suffering is a disgrace. We never have the right to put up somebody else's life for our own. In fact, the Talmud would actually say that in that event, that as, as adults, 
who are following God, if something bad were to happen to us, were to allow it to happen, but to fight it tooth and nail. We never give somebody else up instead of our place. So we see the old man was willing to sacrifice his own daughter for a stranger. And in the same sense, the Levite, his depravity was seen, and he was willing to sacrifice his own wife for himself. They both showed that their own actions were not immune to the moral decay which was surrounding them. Because at this time, remember, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now when her master rose up in the morning, opened the doors of the house, and went out to go his way, behold, the woman his concubine had collapsed at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. Get up, he said to her, and let's go. What a jerk. <laughs> I just, that's not in scripture, but I just got to... That's according to Chris right there. Let's go. But there was no response. So he placed her on the donkey. Then the man got up and went to his place. Now when he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her to all the territory of Israel. So it was that everyone who saw it said, Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen since the day that Benai Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Think it over. Take counsel and speak up. Disgusted by the horrific abuse carried out by the Benjamites, the Levite takes it upon himself to begin the process of rectifying the moral depravity. This moral depravity, if left unchecked, could spread even further. It's obvious to see that this chapter ends in a very dark place. The Benjamites had once again found themselves in that sin cycle that we're all so familiar of. The sin cycle we've seen repeated again and again and again throughout the book of Judges. Peace, apathy, sin, oppression, judgment, deliverance. But as with all dark places, all it takes is one tiny light to penetrate through the darkness. You see, this verse in the book, of, the verse in the book of John that immediately follows the story of the woman caught in adultery goes like this. Yeshua spoke to them, and he said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows after me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In his zeal for righteousness, the unnamed Levite commits an unthinkable act that will spark a flame which will lead to all of Israel taking an account for their sinful state. When we walk out our lives in a manner that glorifies God in his word, we immediately show the world the relationship we have with our Messiah Yeshua. If we want a true revival in our land, a true turning back to God in his Torah, and it means that somebody has to start it. Someone has to be that spark, that flame. Just like when there's schisms in our marriage, we can't wait for others to do what's right before we respond in like manner. May a turning back to God start here. May it start with us today in this place. May we see revival come to our land before it's too late. Shabbat Shalom.